how good it is to hear of God's saving grace through faithful parents, that there's a mercy and a grace that's needed for even a missionary kid. Praise be to God for uh, faithful friends who will show up year after year and just love and serve those that are in need of the gospel. So come to Life Church, uh, don't lose heart in holding out truth to those that need it. Let's pray before we jump into God's word this morning. Our great God, this is a, a sweet day, not only because of what we've been able to do thus far in seeing and hearing those that were once dead, who have been brought to life, testifying to your goodness in their life, to be able to pray to you, to be able to sing to you, but now we get to gather around and sit under your word. God, this word is living and active. It's unlike any other word. And so may our hearts be fully engaged. May you allow us to behold wonderful things in and through your word. May we be able to see our need for a savior and may we be convinced that there's only one, the God-man himself, Jesus Christ, who can meet our needs. So help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's not popular in our day to believe or to proclaim that God judges evil. This notion that God would send plagues, this notion that God would destroy enemies, that God would execute justice, that God has wrath. This is not a popular thought. And many people oftentimes will push back against this by, by saying something like, I'm not interested in the Old Testament God of judgment. Give me the New Testament Jesus of love and forgiveness. Give me the Jesus who never condemned or judged anyone for their sin. And perhaps that's what you want. Not the Old Testament God of judgment, but you want the New Testament Jesus of love and forgiveness. Well, I'm glad that you're here and I'm glad that you're sitting through our service and perhaps you're thinking, man, I wanted the New Testament Jesus and he's preaching the Old Testament God of judgment. I pray that just over the next few moments that you would come to see that the Jesus of the New Testament is in complete harmony with God the Father of the Old Testament. We're not talking about two different gods. In fact, if we continue reading in the book of Exodus, we will reach a point, Exodus chapter 34, that this is what we read about this Old Testament God. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In John's gospel, the Jesus of the New Testament will say that 
the Father of the Old Testament and I are one. Complete harmony. The same God who sits on his throne giving righteous judgments is also the God who is a stronghold for the oppressed. The same Jesus who speaks more graphically of hell than anyone else in the Bible is also the Jesus who secures forgiveness for the sins of any who will turn from their sin and trust in him alone. You see, it's not that we get to the New Testament and the wrath of God goes away. And the Old Testament is where God is pouring out his wrath on all the wicked people. Now we get to the New Testament and this God of great mercy and grace pours out his wrath on his son. And so it's not that he does away with his wrath, but he provides a solution where his wrath can be absorbed, where his wrath can be satisfied, his holy hatred against sin. When I talk about his wrath, that's what I'm talking about. God's holy hatred against everything that's against him. And so I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, it's the second book, Genesis, Exodus chapter 8. You'll notice the chapter headings in the top corners of your Bible. The smaller numbers under the big heading of 8 will be the verses. We'll begin in verse 20. And as we continue our study throughout the book of Exodus, we find ourselves this morning in the middle of these 10 plagues. These 10 signs and wonders that are meant to bring affliction upon a people out of God's judgment against sin. God is judging the wickedness of Pharaoh and of the Egyptians. And in addition to this judgment, what we also find is that these signs and wonders, these plagues, reveal God's mercy. I mean, the fact that we're talking this morning about more plagues is evidence not only of God's judgment, but it's also evidence of his mercy. He continues to give his enemies opportunities to turn away from their sin, to give up their hatred of God. And we stated last week, if we could put sort of a, a bumper sticker a summary statement over why in the world are there 10 plagues? Why not just one? And, and what's the purpose of the 10? We said Exodus 9, 16 really does provide that summary statement. For this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. And so the Lord has so orchestrated that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened, so plagues would continue to come, so that as plagues continued to come, the whole world would know that he is God. After the first three plagues, which we covered last week, what we find is Pharaoh in his, this position of wanting the plagues to end, but he doesn't want his dominion over God's people to end. God, take away the punishment, but let me keep the idolatry. And really, this is a warning to us all. It's possible to witness God's power. It's possible to be familiar with God's power and yet still refuse his grace. 
these plagues make clear that God is supreme, that God has all power, that even the most powerful man in the known world at the time, Pharaoh, God is more powerful than him. God is more powerful than Egypt. God is more powerful than all the other nations. God is more powerful than all of creation. And each one of these plagues uniquely humiliates these false gods that the Egyptians were worshiping. What we read in Numbers chapter 33, verse, verse 4, is that after the devastation of that last plague, plague number 10, where the Egyptians are burying their firstborn, God's word says the Lord had also executed judgments on the Egyptian gods. And so God is a God who desires to be known. And the invitation stands this morning. You can know this God. You can know this God by turning your back to the world and to your desire to set on the throne of your life. You can know this God by turning away from that and trusting in God alone. You can know God in his mercy. And as we stated last week, if you don't come to know him in his mercy, the day is coming where you will know him in his judgment. And so let's unpack God's judgment in these middle three plagues, plagues four, five, and six. And Lord willing, we will also discover his mercy along the way. We said last week that the plagues have this literary structure to them. The first three are grouped together, second three, third three. And we said that there's similarities. The first of each set of plagues are the same. Uh, they're not the same plagues, but they're similar. They have similarities. The second plague in each set of three are similar. The third plague in each set of three are similar. And yet in the middle of all of the similarities, we also find that there are differences. If we could summarize it this way, maybe the first three plagues showed that the most powerful forces that Pharaoh could bring to his aid, they were no match for God. You remember last week, there were times where the magicians would show up and they would seek to replicate these signs and wonders that God was doing. And we find then in the third plague that the magicians say, we have... We have no way to match this. And the magicians even confess, this is the finger of God. And so if the first three plagues showed that there were no forces that Pharaoh could bring into to play that was any match for God, then the plagues that we will look at today, they reveal a distinction that while Egypt is afflicted, God's people are spared. And so let's explore both of these as we continue with the fourth plague. So plague number four, the swarming flies upon the Egyptians. The swarming flies upon the Egyptians. The passage that Charlie read this morning recounts this plague, beginning in Exodus chapter 8, verse 20, all the way to the end of the chapter. And as we read about this first plague, we can recall some of the similarities to the first plague, the Lord calls, calls Moses to go to have a confrontation with Pharaoh and to do it by the bank of the Nile River and to do it in the morning. 
There's another call for, for Pharaoh to let God's people go so that they may serve God. And there's another threat of another sign and wonder, another plague that will bring affliction upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians if he does not concede. What we'll notice about the plagues that we'll talk about today, plagues four, five, and six, is there's no mention of Aaron's staff. You remember last week, each of the plagues, there was... Uh, they were precipitated by the use of Aaron's staff. This week, those are absent. I, in large part, most scholars would say, to, to just make clear to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians that God's power isn't conjured up by some special instrument. It, it's not that you need this staff in order to have this kind of power. Though God is pleased to choose uh, to use the staff. We'll see next week in the last three plagues that it's not Aaron's staff that's being used, but Moses' staff. And, and there's a play here on the words in the Hebrew. If, we could, if I could summarize it or paraphrase it, it's as if the Lord says here in this request, let my people go or I will let a swarm of flies go upon you. Same word being used. And another major distinction with plague number four is that God, has, God makes a clear distinction between his people and the Egyptians. God is going to afflict the Egyptians and God is going to spare his people. And it tells us, as God begins to unleash his powers, He's going to do that over all the Egyptians, verse 21, and then verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. What is Goshen? Well, if you're from Indiana, you know it's a city. <laughs> but Goshen is not the city in Indiana that the Lord is talking about here. Goshen, we find in Genesis chapter 47, verses 5 and 6. This is when Joseph has, uh, he's been reunited with his brothers. He goes to Pharaoh and he asks, Pharaoh, can my family find a place to reside? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. So Goshen was given to Joseph's family by a previous Pharaoh. And it really stood as this place where God's covenant people would reside. And again, what, what we find in this is that God remembers his people. Even in plague number four, God remembers his people. He has not forgotten about his covenant people. And Pharaoh is slowly learning that God does indeed love his covenant people. God will do whatever it takes to rescue his people. God will do whatever it takes to protect his people. God will do whatever it takes to defend them. And the plague that God says he will bring 
if Pharaoh does not let the people go so that they may go and worship him, and again, that's helpful to remember, the reason in which they are to be set free was not to be set free to live life how they wanted to live it, but to be set free to worship the God whom they were accountable to, the God that they were created for. And this plague, it's a devastating swarm of flies. Whether this is the fly as, as we understand it or like a horse fly. Again, in my studies this week, I'm looking at dog flies, which seem pretty gnarly if you're familiar with them. Uh, perhaps some people would say it's, it's like a, a, a scarab beetle which would have been significant to the Egyptians. And so whether this was an affront to Beelzebub, one of the Egyptian gods, the Lord of the flies, who was worshiped as the protector and the guardian, or the scarabs, which appeared often on Egyptian monuments and, and mummies and amulets, whichever one it was, it, God was making clear here that the things that they were prone to trust in would prove to be the things which would lead to their destruction. Charles Spurgeon accurately observes, when it pleases God by his judgments to humble men, he's never at a loss for means. He can use lions or lice, famines or flies. In the armory of God, there are weapons of every kind, from the stars in their courses down to the caterpillars in their hosts. The effect of the flies are devastating. I, I, I cannot comprehend this kind of swarm of flies. There's a certain meal that we make in our home that normally when we make them requires grilling and bringing things in and out. Normally flies appear all the time. If you want the recipe, I would love to give you this recipe. You could also ask the barns. I know how one fly or a few flies can ruin most things for me. Uh, think about driving. And flies begin to, to swarm around. Think about eating. Think about sleeping. Swarms of flies. They, they couldn't open their mouths for long without inhaling flies. Sleeping disrupted. Work brought to a halt. This would have been devastating. In fact, the text tells us that it ruined the land. But we also notice the absence of the magicians. Uh, Pharaoh is outmatched. And there's no God who they can call on. There's no magician who has the power to save Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so what does Pharaoh do? Seeing that he has no answer to the swarm of flies... He calls Moses and Aaron back. And he calls them back and he seeks to make a deal. Verse 25. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. He later will extend that leash a little bit. Verse 28. Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. And we come to a crossroad in plague number four. Here's an opportunity 
for Moses to help alleviate the suffering of people if he will take this concession that Pharaoh makes. And yet this is what Moses knows. He knows that when it comes to obeying God, it's all or nothing. We would be well served to just remember exactly what it is that the Lord called Moses and Aaron to go and speak to Pharaoh and to make clear the conditions of what was being asked. It wasn't merely the opportunity and the window of time in order to make a sacrifice. It was to make a sacrifice in a certain place, a certain number of days away. What a temptation for Moses. And I can say that because, oh, what a temptation for us today. Uh, God, I know you've said this, but did you really mean all of this? I mean, I can avoid that, but maybe I don't have to land at this. Maybe I can land somewhere in the middle. I'm close enough. We seem to want to be okay with worshiping God close enough to what God has said. And yet God demands that this sacrifice be done out of the land. But what would it hurt just to go ahead and do it within the land? What would it hurt just to go ahead and do it just one day's journey away and not three days journey away? Well, what God knows about humanity that he's created is that small compromises that lead to half-hearted commitment soon slide into wholehearted forgetfulness. These compromises to God's word would lead to half-hearted commitment where, where, where the people then would begin to fashion God and to fashion his word into what they deemed acceptable. And oh, what a dangerous place to be, brothers and sisters, that we would ever seek to fashion God's word into what we deem acceptable. There's a reason that you and I are not God. And while that may be a threat, there's another side to that that is such a huge grace. And so we ought to be very cautious and very slow about wanting to assume the role of sitting in judgment over God and his word. No, God's rightful place is over us. And we allow our lives to come under his word. God doesn't merely demand to be worshiped. God demands to be worshiped in a specific and correct way. As we make our way through the book of Exodus, the ending of the book of Exodus is going to be a lesson for us week in and week out as we see the details of the tabernacle made clear over and over and over. And we will hear, and this is the pattern that you should follow. This is the way it's meant to be done. And so again, just think of the application of this for you today. Think about your life. Think about even 
what we're doing now, corporate worship. Is your view of worship shaped by and rooted in God's commands in his word? Or is it shaped by what you think you need most? That's a dangerous place to be, friends. When we find ourselves saying, I know God's word says this, but. Be careful. Because in a culture that says, insist on you, insist on your desires, insist on your wants, insist on your needs, the Bible calls us to submit all of those to what God has said. Just even thinking about what we've been able to do this morning. We gather to read, to pray, to sing, and to sit under the preaching of his word. And we really do believe that's enough. That's enough because over and over, that's what his word has said. I wonder if you believe that. And Moses' answer to Pharaoh here is, is particularly helpful. And, and I understand Moses to be exposing the heart motivation of Pharaoh in his response. Moses says in verse 27, or verse 26, it's not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? And, and, and we can step back and we can see Moses saying, okay, wait, Pharaoh, let me get this right. You want us to sacrifice here in the land, which would be offensive to your people, which would lead us to being put to death. Pharaoh, come on. Uh, you got, you've got to come stronger than that. Like, is this one of the little okie doke Well, here, you just do it here. And if you do it here, then your God will be happy. Pharaoh, we will be dead. <laughs> Pharaoh, we're not playing into your hands. It's all or nothing with this God. And so then Pharaoh says, okay, verse 28, well, then I'll let you go. Just don't go so far away. Make supplication for me. And Moses in verse 29, again, look at the mercy of God. Moses is praying on behalf of Pharaoh, asking the Lord to take away the flies. And again, trace the mercy of God. Verse 31, the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not even one remained. Oh, how good it would have been to have been there on that day. Just ain't no flies. Rest assured, God will not be mocked. Moses even says, Pharaoh, don't deal deceitfully again with the Lord. Pharaoh, you may think that because the leash continues to extend and it hasn't been pulled tight in judgment, don't think that the Lord doesn't care or he doesn't see or he doesn't know. He will not be played like this. He will not be mocked. His grace is deep. His mercy is on display as, as Pharaoh is given yet another shot to bow the knee. And then Moses tells us in, in verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. This time also, 
and he did not let the people go. It brings us to the fifth plague. Death of the Egyptian livestock. Death of the Egyptian livestock. We find this in Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Follow along. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are on the field, on the horses, or which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. So the Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Verse 7, Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Again, we recall the similarities of this this plague, the fifth plague, with the second plague. There's another command. The Lord tells Moses and Aaron to go and speak with Pharaoh, have a confrontation. There's not a specific time frame or a specific location. If Pharaoh refuses, then the hand of the Lord will be set against him. And again, what do we find in plague number three? The, the magician saying, ah, oh, we believe this is the finger of God. Now, plague number five, we see the intensification of these plagues. It's no longer the finger of God. Now it's the hand of the Lord. And for the first time in these plagues, death is the direct affliction. We see death has happened before. When the Nile turned from water to blood, we saw that the fish died. And then after the second plague, we saw that the frogs died. And as the other plagues are gone, the Lord seems to be taking these, these afflictions away and he's bringing about death somehow. But this is a specific affliction of death of the livestock of the Egyptians. And again, notice the distinction of the Egyptians, not of the people of God. This seems to be an assault either on the false god Hathor who was the mother goddess, who was, de who was depicted as a cow, or the false god Apis, the bull god of Memphis. Phil Riken says the symbolism of this plague is especially potent because many of, Egypt of Egypt's gods and goddesses were depicted as livestock. Like many Hindus, the Egyptians loved their sacred cows. I mean, so much so, it's not surprising in Exodus chapter 32, when God's people will rebel against God, they seek to fashion an idol for themselves. They fashion a calf. And God calls out the timing of this plague. Tomorrow, this is going to happen. Again, underscoring his power and his rule over all things and in all things. And not only would this strike at their idolatry, but this would strategically strike and impact their economy, their livestock, their animals. Was everything from 
food to transportation. I mean, this was a strategic hit on the Egyptians. God would bring the day-to-day culture of the Egyptians to a grinding halt with this plague. I do want to be clear, in the seventh plague that we'll cover next week, the Lord will call for Pharaoh and those who would trust to bring their animals in from the field because a hailstorm is going to come. You say, wait a minute, I thought plague number five said all animals. I understand all here to be all sorts of animals, all over the place, but not in totality where there was zero animals left. And so this plague was crippling. It was severe for Egypt. And in an act of self-diminishing confidence, what does Pharaoh do in verse 7? He sends investigators out. Can someone just go check Goshen? I mean, did really, did, did not even one livestock die? And Pharaoh finds that God has kept his word. And friends, you and I will find day in, day out, God keeps his word. He's faithful to his word. And Pharaoh's heart grew harder to God. He did not let the people go. It would be easy for us just to run past that little phrase at the end of each of these plagues. But I hope, I hope you, even today, can hear the warning. Do not, do not allow your heart to grow hardened to the things of God. It is a dangerous place to be. Leads us to our sixth plague. Boils upon the Egyptian. Boils upon the Egyptian. And this is what we find in Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. Then the Lord said to Moses and to, and, and to Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln, they stood before Pharaoh, Moses threw it toward the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. The magicians, here they are again, could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians as well as all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Like the third plague, similarities. There's no announcement. There's no warning. There's no confrontation with Pharaoh. There's no opportunity for discussion. And for the first time, the plagues weren't just annoying the Egyptians or bringing their culture and society to a halt. No, now these plagues begin to afflict the Egyptians. Animals in nature thus far have borne the brunt of the plagues, and now humans will bear the brunt of this plague. Moses and Aaron are told to take the soot from the kiln and to throw it up, and the boils would then consume the bodies of the Egyptians and the beasts. God's people would have been very familiar with the kilns because they were enslaved. 
and their enslavement got even harder when straw was taken away. And so what were they doing? They were making bricks using mud and dirt and clay and putting it into these kilns. And so again, even the, the, the soot from slavery that Pharaoh would enforce would symbolize God's judgment upon this wicked king. Again, the things that you were trusting in to create a sense of, of renown for yourself will be the things that will lead to your destruction. And maybe this was an attack on their religious practices because skin diseases would have meant ritual impurity. The hope for Egypt earlier was that the magicians would show up. And the magicians do show up. But they're powerless to help because they are afflicted by this plague. And again, the scene ends with this reminder that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart for the first time in the plague accounts. We've had Pharaoh hardened his heart, we had, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And for the first time in these 10 plague accounts, we have, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. God is giving Pharaoh exactly what he wants. And he's doing it for a purpose that Pharaoh is completely unaware of. This hardening of Pharaoh's heart was this judicial action, this, this kingly action against the one who had ignored God's mercy. God has given Pharaoh repeated warnings. Pharaoh has refused to acknowledge the significance of the signs. Pharaoh has gone back on his word again and again. One commentator, John McKay, said, he, he noted this, the one who persisted in his stubbornness is now deprived of the ability to do anything else. Friends, that is chilling. The one who persisted in his stubbornness is now deprived of the ability to do anything else. Lig Duncan says, when God grants for the wicked to go their own way, to follow their own pleasure, that is the sorest judgment this side of hell. Friends, God isn't pressing Pharaoh to go against his desires. God hardens Pharaoh's hearts by giving him his desires. My, oh my. Would we all not be Pharaoh were it not for the grace of God? If you're not a Christian this morning, I, I pray that this reality would just arrest your attention for a few moments. Each of these plagues has been drawing a dividing line between all of humanity, those who belong to God and those who do not, those who worship God and those who worship other gods, false gods, idols. And, and to you, you may say, well, that's off-putting too. It's off-putting that God would come and he would bring division. What about God coming and bringing unity? 
Give me the New Testament Jesus. I just want to remind you that New Testament Jesus said that when the Son of Man returns, he will separate the sheep from the goats, Matthew chapter 25. Every person throughout all of history has belonged in one of these two categories. God's people, not God's people. And God's people are those who are without sin and are perfect as God is perfect. And here's a problem. None of us can be God's people. Who in here would say, hey, that's me. Perfect as God is perfect. None of us. And the judgment that sinners will experience will be far more severe than all the plagues against these Egyptians. Which means that if you are a sinner, it would serve you well to give attention to whether or not you belong to God's people. The Israelites, the Hebrews, God's chosen people, they were no less sinners than the Egyptians. They were spared not because of themselves. They were spared because of God. It was God's mercy that spared the Israelites. God's wrath will soon be poured out, so we should all seek to dwell in a land that's even greater than Goshen. That kind of salvation is only possible through the grace of Jesus Christ. His sinless life earning righteousness that you and I could never earn. His death as a substitute on the cross, absorbing God's holy hatred for sin. And his bodily resurrection on the third day, promising eternity for all who turn from their sin and trust in God alone. This is the offer of salvation. This is the exodus of the greater bondage, not just of a people enslaved to Egypt, but to a humanity enslaved to sin. And so we read this, and, and the command is just flee. Flee your sin. Turn your back on your sin. Turn your back on living for that which you think is best and submit to living to what God has said is best. Friends, you will give an account to this God. You were created for this God. And because of your sins, you are at odd with this God. And because of his mercy, found in the work of Jesus alone, you can be reconciled to this God. Friends, turn from your sin and flee to the only refuge that is able to stand and hold. There is no greater hope than that which is found in Christ Jesus the Lord. If if you've never turned from your sin, if you have questions about what that means, find any member, find our pastors, talk to any of us. It would be the joy of this day to be able to walk with you about what that means. C.S. Lewis, in, in writing The Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair, he writes about this encounter between Jill and the lion Aslan. Aslan is figurative of Jesus. Jill is thirsty. She's searching for water. 
She thinks she hears the sound of running water and she musters up the courage to go search it out. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to, to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment. And sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade. She saw the stream, bright as glass, running across a turf, a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of water made her feel 10 times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink it. She stood as still as if she had been turned to a stone with her mouth wide open, and she had very good reason, because just on this side of the stream lay the lion. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you're thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, a heavy sort of golden voice. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I get a drink? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Do you eat girls? She asked fearfully. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, uh, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. Friends, the plagues are meant to convince you and I there is no other God except this one. There's no other God. You're not going to be able to go and find another God that's going to protect you more. Another God who's better, who has more good in himself, in themselves than, than he. You're not going to be able to find another God who's more just in their judgments, who's more lavish in their mercy, who's more loving in all of their ways. There is no other God. And Pharaoh found this out, and the Egyptians found this out, and the nations saw this, they were beholding it, and they found this out. There is only this God who is sovereign over heaven and over earth. You may not understand what he's doing, but he is good. And he intends for us to learn about his judgments and be wooed by his mercy. The Lord is God. And I am not. That's what Pharaoh hated. He hated the Lord is God and I am not. Maybe that's what you hate too. Maybe that's what it all really comes down to. You have questions, you have hurts, you have intellectual hangups. All of that's fair. But let's get to the heart. Are you okay? Do you love that he is God and that you are not? Because if you love it, that means he gets to be the judge. That means he gets to choose. That means he gets to call the shots. 
He gets to set the end from the beginning. He knows the the beginning from the end. And maybe that's why you hate God. Maybe it's why you love God. Because this is the best news in the world. He is God and you don't have to be. You can say that sentence with disbelief. He is God. And I'm not. You can say it with disgust. He is God and I'm not. If you want his place on the throne, that's what you'll say. Or you can say it with utter delight. He is God. And praise be to him. I am not. And so I don't have to meet all of my needs. I can't meet all of my needs. I don't have to save myself. I can't save myself. I don't have to redeem myself. I don't have to worry about the judgment of the world. I don't have to because he is God and I am not. Do you love that God is God and you are not? Is your heart hardening like Pharaoh? Do you find yourself saying, I won't take this God, a God with standards and distinction and glory, because I want that. I want the power to judge. I want the power to decide. I want the power and I want the glory. Either God is your great disgust or he is your great delight. And so friends, let's know his mercy. Friends, you can know him because of his mercy. And so be spared of the judgment that we rightly deserve. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray.